0: I'm not going to pretend that it's the only thing that could have done it but it did do it and that colors the conversations we're having now with the fact that these could be very different conversations and i am absolutely serene and confident that i made the right choice
1: well ladies and gentlemen that is the voice of one justin pierre james trudeau he is the 23rd Can- uh, prime minister of canada the first to invoke the Federal Emergencies Act. Now, mind you, that law didn't exist for the previous 17. His father, of course, was also the prime minister, you may recall. Uh, He invoked the predecessor of that legislation, the War Measures Act. Uh, But Justin Trudeau, the first prime minister to make use of the Federal Emergencies Act and therefore the first prime minister to appear before a public inquiry into the government's use of the Emergencies Act, which is a check and balance uh, that was wisely put into the legislation. Absolutely. On decision of this gravity, there should be some after the fact scrutiny. So this is basically the culmination uh, of this public inquiry. So after today uh, will now fall to Justice Rouleau uh, to come to some conclusions about all of this whether the use of the Emergencies Act was justified. So the prime minister believes it was, and in a moral sense and in a legal sense. And the latter point is where there are some interesting questions here because of some of the thresholds laid out in the Emergencies Act as to determining whether there is a threat to national security, determining whether there is a public order emergency. So did it rise to that occasion? Now, what I'll say about the prime minister's appearance today And maybe given what we've seen from him in question period, maybe given what we've seen from him in press conferences, the bar was set kind of low. This is a prime minister who stumbles a lot when faced with tough questions. This is a prime minister that sticks to oftentimes irrelevant talking points when faced with tough questions. What would happen with this prime minister is on the stand, under oath, appearing before a public inquiry, not just fielding softer questions from government lawyers, but under cross-examination from lawyers representing other interested parties? Now, as we speak, the prime minister is facing some questions uh, from one of the lawyers representing convoy organizers, and maybe I should put questions in in scare quotes uh, because the lawyer spent much of his, his opening time simply reading statements to the prime minister from Canadians who supported the convoy protest. Seems like an odd use uh, of your time when you have an opportunity to ask the prime minister questions under oath, but uh, I guess uh, to each his own. Uh, The the prime minister did, I I think, maybe uh, surpass expectations today, even if the bar was set low. doesn't necessarily answer some of the important questions at hand here that he gave satisfactory answers to those important questions. Uh, but the prime minister was prepared. The prime minister didn't stumble. The prime minister didn't st- stick to talking points. The prime minister made his case for why he believed this was the right decision for him to make. I hope, and I don't know, I hope that this prime minister, or any prime minister, uh, who's faced with the question of whether to make use of these emergency powers takes that decision seriously, that this is something that would weigh On him or her. To the extent that it does here, I don't know. But I would give the Prime Minister some credit, I suppose, for at least showing up prepared and laying out his arguments. They were coherent, not necessarily correct, but at least they were some coherent answers. I want to go through some of what the Prime Minister said here today. I do want to hear from you, of course. I'm not sure if you've been following this today. There's a lot going on today, obviously. Uh, but I do want to hear from you today, four zero three nine seven four eight two five five. So let's go through some of it here. Uh, so here's the prime minister uh, talking about uh, the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act and the discussion around the table. It was the incident response group, as it was known, the IRG, and you'll hear some references to that today. The prime minister said uh, that there was a consensus around the table. Nobody around the table raised concern about making use of the Emergencies
2: Act. Was there consensus on the use of the act? Did, did, what, did, what did you hear about whether or not people agreed with this interpretation, whether you should invoke the act?
0: Yes, there was consensus around the IRG table uh, on Sunday the 13th. There is no question about it. And, and uh, Director Vigneault's um, answer on that is absolutely consistent. Uh, CSIS, for example, wouldn't feel that they had the capacity to bring in a wiretap against one of the convoy organizers under the CSIS Act because that the tools that they have and the threshold they have to meet for what is a threat to the security of Canada, um, according to CSIS's evaluation, was not was not met. And that that was something we heard from the very beginning. CSIS uh, continued to say from the beginning of the protest, we haven't yet, under the CSIS Act, uh, reached a level of threats to Canada. But the director of CSIS is also one of the national security advisors to me, and in looking at the frame and scope of the situation we were in, uh, was very comfortable in saying, yeah, for the purposes of the CSIS Act, this is not met. But for the sur- for purposes of the Public Order Emergencies uh, Act that the Governor and Council uh, has to make a reasonable decision about, we feel that it is met. And that was the consensus from officials around the table. And again, not even just sort of that binary, okay, do we declare the emergency or not? It's do we declare a public order emergency so that we can bring in these specific measures and as we went around the table on that, and my expectation is, and that was a virtual table, I believe, uh, but my expectation is uh, always, uh, if you have significant disagreements, this is the time to speak up. There was no uh, voice saying, hold it. Um, we don't think you should do this, or I don't think you should do this, um, which does happen from time to time in cabinet meetings and in IRGs. Uh, and. Uh, if someone had come up and said okay uh we don't think us at transport canada we don't think that we should invoke a public order emergency i would have said thank you i would have taken that into account but i didn't need unanimity or full consensus in order to uh, make the determination in governor of council according to that that we were moving forward obviously it helped uh and in this case there was consensus around that table that invoking the Emergencies Act was what we needed to do.
1: It wasn't legally justified. One of the points that's come up in all of this is that there's a threshold here, and it's laid out in the Act itself, where it defers to the CSIS Act with regard to the determination of whether there exists a threat to national security. And in the assessment of CSIS, that was not the case. So what did the government rely upon to reach a different conclusion. And, and this is where we still run into a, a bit of a brick wall of uncertainty and a lack of transparency in terms of the legal advice being provided to the government at the time. The prime minister's explanation was that they believed they could take other factors into consideration. Here's the prime minister under cross-examination from the lawyer representing the Canadian Constitution Foundation on this point. Sir, I, I put it to you that not until this commission... Has the Government of
3: Canada ever publicly communicated that the threshold for declaring a determining a threat to national security is different under the Emergencies Act than under the CESES Act? Not once. Why is that, sir? It's
0: in the first line of uh, the Public Order Emergency section of the um, Emergencies Act that the Governor and Council can, on grounds uh, declare a public order emergency if, um, in their regional opinion, I'm, I'm paraphrasing obviously, the, uh, there are threats uh, to the security of Canada uh, and uh, it is a national emergency. Uh, that, that doesn't mention a CSIS threshold anywhere.
1: There was also the question put to the prime minister today about Brenda Lucky, the RCMP commissioner, as we've learned in this inquiry. Uh, Brenda Lucky was of the opinion on the day before the Emergencies Act was invoked that there were still tools that law enforcement had at their disposal. One of the prerequisites for using the Emergencies Act, that it must be a situation that existing laws and law enforcement agencies are unable to respond to. So what does the prime minister make of Brenda Lucky's assessment then at the time that those avenues had not yet been exhausted?
3: Prime Minister, Brenda Lucky, the commissioner of the RCMP, also on the, on the 13th, she was of the view that existing legal tools had not been exhausted, and she communicated this to the chief of staff of Minis- uh, to Minister Mendocino. Were you aware of that?
0: I was not aware of that at the time. Uh, as we went around the the virtual table at the IRG that day. Um, the consensus from everyone, including uh, the uh, commissioner of the RCMP, uh, was clear that there, that we were advancing uh, on these uh, extra tools. Um, and I As I said, I don't disagree with that assessment that not all tools had been used. That was part of the problem, that not all tools were being used uh, to uh, end uh, this occupation.
1: One more exchange I want to play for you here just before we take a break, and we'll we'll get to some of your phone calls as well. Um, So the prime minister was uh, of the opinion that the uh, police operational plan for dealing with the, uh, the protests was insufficient. That was his assessment. Now, at one point during his testimony today, he suggested that people read that plan, I guess, to see for themselves. And this brings us to one of the issues here where we're not able to see a lot of these things, including the very document that the prime minister suggests that people read. So here's an interesting exchange. This is, again, the lawyer for the Canadian Constitution Foundation trying to ask the Prime Minister about this. You've then got uh, the lawyer representing the government intervening and Justice Rouleau having to uh, basically referee all of this. Uh, The short version is we still don't get to see these documents.
3: So, Prime Minister, you said we should read this plan. We can't. Mm Uh, It's it's within your legal authority to instruct your council to remove these redactions. For the sake of the the transparency of this commission, sir, would you consider that request?
4: I object to that. Uh, On behalf of the Government of Canada, it's Brian Gover once again. This is putting the Prime Minister in an odious position. Uh, We had no notice that they would attempt this uh, in cross-examination. These things require careful consideration do not lend themselves to decisions in the moment, and uh, we
3: maintain our objection. Uh, uh, Commissioner, sorry, sir. Uh, This was in our document list. Um, that we circulated within time uh, to counsel for the Attorney General. They had noticed that we would be putting this document. And the question is a fair one in response to the Prime Minister's testimony this morning that he said you should read it.
0: I think it it, uh, is fair uh, in a sense, but I think what's being raised is it's a little more complicated than the federal government or the prime minister releasing these.
3: So, Commissioner, with that, with, with your ruling there, and I thank Mr. Gover for his point, Prime Minister, can I put it to you this way? You said we should read the plan, but I think you would agree we can't.
0: Uh, indeed. Uh, I, uh, I, as I said, I haven't read the plan, but we're in a situation where, uh, as can be imagined, uh, I've... Have access to uh, unredacted information uh, and what I know and my understanding of this plan uh, was and I'm happy to testify to that uh, that it was not a complete plan of engagement
3: and 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 um, and Prime Minister and again I, I think I would like to raise this again I'm looking to mr. Gover in anticipation of his of his reaction as you know there's a legal opinion uh, that over which solicitor-client privilege has been asserted. We asked uh, Minister Lamedi, uh to release that opinion, and in a public statement this week, he said he couldn't because he lacked the authority to, that would be up to his client, and he then clarified that his client is his governor and counsel. Uh, so again, for the record, sir, uh, and this has been an issue for all week, not just this morning, uh, would you uh, advise that that opinion be released in the interest of transparency?
4: Solicitor-client privilege, of course, is a very substantial right in our legal system. It's one that the Supreme Court of Canada has recognized as a constitutional dimension. I remind my friends that in this case, as the Prime Minister has said, Cabinet confidence has been waived for the fourth time in 155 years to provide evidence of inputs. This is certainly an issue that requires careful consideration and not one. To require a prime minister to respond to in the spur of the moment.
0: Okay, well, I think uh, you have a refusal uh, essentially uh, by uh, council, so I think you're going to have to move on. So, uh-
1: okay, so uh, that was a little long, but it, it speaks to two important points here. The point about this policing plan. That the Prime Minister said was not sufficient in addressing the situation, which in turn further led to the decision ultimately to invoke the Emergencies Act, as well as the legal advice uh, that the Prime Minister and his government received about the authority to invoke the Emergencies Act. Both very relevant pieces of information. Neither are available for the public to see. The Prime Minister, as you heard, has the ability to unredact and to release those documents. But they've opted not to. So beyond the prime minister's case that he's making today, we're we're still left with that fact.
0: I am moved, uh, and I was moved as I heard these testimonies, as I saw the depth of hurt and anxiety about the present and the future expressed by so many people. The COVID pandemic was unbelievably difficult on all Canadians.
1: Well, it was the prime minister uh, on the stand this afternoon, uh, an answer that kind of seems irrelevant to the matter at hand, but was served up to him, uh, interestingly enough, by one of the lawyers representing protesters. The uh, lawyer read to the prime minister some of the letters written by some of the demonstrators and asked the prime minister if he was moved by their comment. Again, an interesting uh, way to make use of your time, I guess, when you've got an opportunity to uh, question the Prime Minister on the stand. Uh, same with this exchange here. So, this is lawyer Eva Chipiak representing uh, the group known as Freedom Corps, uh, accusing the Prime Minister of calling the unvaccinated names, accusing uh, Trudeau of characterizing the unvaccinated as racist and misogynists.
0: There's a difference between people who are hesitant to get vaccinated for any range of reasons, and people who deliberately spread misinformation that puts at risk the life and health of their fellow Canadians. And my focus, every step of the way, and the primary responsibility of a prime minister is to keep Canadians safe and alive.
1: Okay, so that from some of the testimony this afternoon, not really getting us to the question of whether the government was justified in invoking the Emergencies Act. However, it was interesting uh, today when uh, former Premier Jason Kenney's name uh, came up in all of this, uh, that uh, the prime minister suggesting that that initially there wasn't uh, pushback from Alberta about uh, relying on the Emergencies Act. Uh, Today, he noted that, you know, the situation in Alberta, even when Jason Kenney removed public health restrictions, it did not de-escalate anything.
0: When uh, Premier Kenney in Alberta uh, did remove a number of mandates, uh, instead of decreasing the amount of concern, the convoy coots Coutts uh, seemed to be emboldened. Say, look, it's starting to work. Let's keep going uh, instead of actually de-escalating.
1: It was also interesting, too, when um, Candace Bergen's name came up today. Now, Candace Bergen, of course, was interim conservative leader in between Aaron O'Toole and Pierre Polyev. And maybe a bit of a contrast between what she was saying publicly and uh, what she was saying privately to the prime minister.
0: Let's make sure as political parties, we keep talking about it, and keeping up, figuring out how uh, we can work together. Um, and then, you know, some of their asks are non-starters, like overturning the results of the election that we just had. Uh, but in terms of uh, responding to their demands uh, or, or legitimizing them by engaging, I'm highlighting that I'm worried about setting a precedent uh, that a blockade on Wellington Street can, can lead to changing public policy. People need to be heard, uh, but we need to get that balance right. Uh, and then uh, she agreed that I need to be cautious and I don't want to set any bad precedents
1: alright seven four eight two five five. More of your thoughts on what you might have heard today or didn't hear today from the Prime Minister. And I guess some broader questions about uh, this whole exercise and whether it's all been worth it. Uh, this is Mike. Mike, welcome to the program.
5: Well, well nice to talk to you. Uh, a little metaphor for everyone. When the peasants are so provoked that they feel the need to actually revolt... The problem isn't with the peasants. The problem is with the king.
1: I see. Okay. That was it?
5: Well, uh, you know, if you can understand that, then you'll catch the meaning. If, if not, then we're stuck with weak leaders like Justin Trudeau.
1: Okay. All right. Yeah, fair enough, Mike. appreciate the phone call. I mean, I guess you could say that about any protest targeting any political leader, which protests are deemed to have that legitimacy, which protests are, are deemed to represent the people. I mean, I guess if you support it, then, then you're more inclined to believe that, I suppose. Was that true here? Anyway, this is Owen. Owen, go ahead. Uh, Welcome to the program. Hello? Yeah. Oh. Hey, Owen.
5: Hello, uh, Rob. You know, I was just listening to your last newscast. <laughs> and uh, in the last newscast, Trudeau fully admitted they had an excerpt of him that it wasn't the only thing that could have solved the crisis, he says, but it did work. Well, isn't the emergencies act, not an act of absolute last resort. He, he shouldn't have used it. He fully admitted it, that it wasn't the last resort. You know, the only reason he did it, in my opinion, is because his daddy did it. You know, he brings up that thing with... Uh, you know uh, the dropping of the restrictions in Alberta. That wasn't all of it. The, the other part was the truckers crossing the border and the like. So I mean, he should just admit that he was wrong and put in measures to prevent him from prevent him from being able to do it again. You know, he's he's lowered the bar so badly that you know they can just about bring in the Emergency Act at a whim any time the government. Thinks it's necessary. Why put any guidelines in at all? Anyway, thanks,
1: Rob. Mm-hmm. All right, Owen, appreciate the phone call. I mean, those guidelines are there for a reason. Those threth- thresholds are there for a reason. I-, I think this is the clip that Owen's referring to that we played right at the beginning of the program, where the prime minister talks about uh, the fact that in his assessment, this worked.
0: I'm not going to pretend that it's the only thing that could have done it, but it did do it. And that colors the conversations we're having now with the fact that these could be very different conversations and i am absolutely serene and confident that i made the right choice
1: but with regard to the alberta government's position uh, on all of this uh here was another moment today when uh, jason Kenney's name came up in the prime minister's testimony
0: jason Kenney, i believe said uh, i'm not going to quibble with the use of the act um, but uh, we don't need it here in alberta but the reality is There were pop-ups and troubling reports right across the country that we were getting from uh, all of our various inputs. Uh, There was uh, a uh, financing of these convoys that was coming from every corner of the country and internationally. Uh, These were things that uh, were generalized across the country and and therefore uh, required a use of the Emergencies Act.
1: And further to the point about whether there was room for negotiation with protesters.
0: It wasn't that they just wanted to be heard. They wanted to be obeyed. They wanted us to change public policy, public health policy designed uh, to help Canadians. And we're going to occupy uh, locations across this country and interfere with the lives of Canadians until such a decision was taken.
1: Right, your thoughts four zero three nine seven four eight two five five. Back to the phones we go, and we'll say hello to Francis. Welcome to the hello.
6: program, Rob. How are you doing? I'm pretty good, Rob. I'm an old guy. I'm in my seventies now, and I remember back in the fifties when we were living in Clarensome on the Air Force Base way back, that the polio epidemic uh, hit, and uh, I was in school, probably kindergarten or grade one at that time, and I can remember the entire school being frog marched into a hangar to get their polio shots. I remember, and I think Canadians at large, took on an emergency and said, we have to do something, and we have to do it now, and they did. And we got polio under control, um, and that's where I have, I think Justin Trudeau did exactly the right things with the truckers and this business of uh, closing the borders and uh, holding a city hostage. Um, I couldn't uh, be happier with uh, what they did. I think that if they frog-marched the truckers off the day after they started that protest and just threw them in jail and left them there for a few days or weeks and cleared the roads up, we'd be hundreds of millions of dollars ahead, and our reputation, uh, country-wise, would be intact. Thank you for giving me your time.
1: All right, friends. Appreciate the phone call. Let's go to Jen. Jen, welcome to the program. Oh, Hey there. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, is that Jim?
7: No, it's Ken. Oh, Ken. Anyways. Ken, go ahead. Have people forgot that that before the act was invoked, that the borders were open, that the so-called firearms that were confiscated weren't part of the protest spoken right from the RCMP? The only thing that the Emergency Act did was Ottawa, nothing else. And it didn't need to be there either. All it needed was for him or somebody to have a discussion to try and de-escalate the problem. Not saying that it would have ended it immediately, but it sure would have made a hell- heck of a difference. Like it's, it, it, I don't agree that that he should be allowed to have that kind of power when it wasn't necessary. Right.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's fair, Ken. I appreciate the phone call. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I'm not convinced it was necessary. And it is true that uh, the border crossings at both Coots and Windsor were open just before the Emergencies Act was invoked. Those arrests that happened at the Coots blockade also occurred just as uh, the Emergencies Act was coming into force. I think the arrests were either the day or the day after. The Emergencies Act was invoked, but obviously that investigation had been going on for, for some time. Uh, so, yes, look, that group, those individuals charged, the, the guns that were seized were all a part of uh, this blockade. They, they seemed to be maybe their, their own group within the blockade. But, yeah, it was, it was certainly part of all of that, obviously. So again, a number of people facing some pretty serious charges as a result of that, but the Emergencies Act wasn't necessary to facilitate that investigation or the laying of those criminal charges. And I guess to the bigger point, uh, it didn't appear necessary to get those border crossings reopened. So if those situations were resolved before the act was invoked, why does the government keep referring to them? Anyway, this is uh, David. David, welcome to the program. uh,
8: There's all this talk going on about uh, the Freedom Convoy and the problems and stuff and uh, nobody there could seem to agree on anything, but I wonder if they'd have taken a vote amongst all those people that were protesting how many were upset at the uh, every week and a half it seems like Trudeau has a new scandal and nobody's put that into words, and I think that the truckers would all agree that that's the problem. Do we have to have a new scandal every Week and a half. You know what I mean?
1: No, I'm not sure what you mean. You so you are. Are you saying that this was more about this was a protest against Justin Trudeau?
8: Yeah, there's lots of uh, there's lots of words stuff happening, but uh, and they're saying there was oh several factions in the Freedom Convoy, and and I think that's true. Yeah, But I think everybody was uh, upset about what kind of leadership have we got. I mean, bottom line, how many people were killed? How many buildings were on fire? You get a protest other places in the world, and that's what you've got. What do we have here? Bouncy castles. They're crying out loud.
1: Well, you got gridlocked streets. you got a lot of noise, obviously. Um, you've got neighborhoods that are unusable for days and days, weeks on end. I mean, let's not uh, underscore or undersell the impact of all of this. You know, it wasn't Armageddon, but it wasn't uh, just a fun little party either. And we're getting uh, two extreme interpretations of what was going on in Ottawa. Uh, It was a problem. And I think it was one that needed to be dealt with. In fact, I think, as alluded to earlier, uh, a lot of mistakes and failings early on. Part of the reason why it became as big of a problem as it did. But was it a problem that rose to the level of needing the Emergencies Act to deal with it? That's the question here. It gets further to the point, I guess, about why the protesters were there. I mean, it's, it's worthwhile to understand everything that happened here, I suppose, for posterity's sake. But it's not necessarily relevant to the central question at hand. Why were they there? And I guess there's all kinds of reasons for that. In fact, apparently there's... Uh, um, Another convoy planned for this coming February. So if you can figure out why that's the case, because I can't, then maybe you can better understand what this is all about. We saw protests uh, targeting the prime minister before the pandemic. So maybe there was some carryover from some of that. I think a lot of it was just general frustration with pandemic rules, not just the federal rules, provincial rules, all of it. I think some of it was a little more adamant on the anti-vaccine side. I think, look, there there was a lot to it, I guess is the short answer. But, yeah, I mean, if there is still a movement that exists, even though restrictions no longer do, then maybe there is a lot more to it. Uh, this is Bob. Hi there, Bob.
9: Hey, Rob. Uh, I got a few things on my mind, actually. Well, one of them is uh, earlier today, Shea Gam said, what could Trudeau said or done, if you would have met with these people, it's called diplomacy. He could have come and met with the people and said, hey, move your your, your protest to another spot. We'll meet, we'll talk, we'll engage in, in conversation. That would have probably appeased him a lot more than saying, you're a bunch of racist, misogynist, yada, yada. Also, when they said they were going to come to town, they gave a couple of weeks' notice. He made sure he was out of town when they showed up. He ran. He didn't even bother didn't even show him the respect to be there or whatever.
1: He I don't was know if in quarantine was right at around. the time, wasn't he?
9: No, he left. He went out of town. He moved his family out of town. I don't believe he was in quarantine, but you could still use the phone if you are, right?
1: Anyway, so, but no, okay. I think he was in yeah, town, but yeah. yeah, sure, okay. And then
9: no, he left. But then and then the documents that everybody keeps talking about. So in the court case before it started, they requested those documents. there to get them months before this uh, hearing took place. They got them during the hearings heavily redacted. So basically, Trudeau can say, oh, yeah, we're, we're doing our part. We gave you the documents, but they gave them unreadable documents. So I think the, the lawyer for the, for the protest is saying he wants to get on record that they actually didn't get anything. So they would which, difference, I don't think Trudeau wants to have another side heard. I mean, you, you did mention that maybe not the best talking but you did get in there that, hey, documents are part of it. You, you delivered them to us, but they're
1: unreadable. So okay. Yeah, Bob, we're just starting to lose you there, but I appreciate the phone call. Let's get one more in here. This is Mike. On, go ahead. Uh, uh,
9: I just, uh, I think, well, uh, just the uh, people are fed up with the level of hypocrisy with Trudeau. It's it's like, well, calling, you know, our Canadians fringe minorities and all that, and then uh, just months before, he was kneeling down with the Black Lives Matter movement that were killing people, setting businesses on fire in the States and all that. So I just think that it's like, it's just mind-boggling how how he gets away with all this stuff. And people are just talking about the fact that uh, it's the Freedom Convoy. I don't think it was too much about the Freedom Convoy. I, was, I think it was more people just fed up with those policies and just... They, they want him gone, and, and I, they, I'm, I'm surprised he's still there.
10: As for the process that got us to those conclusions, I'm going to leave that to the final argument of my lawyers. That pushes me into an area where I, I can't really answer the question without, uh, without infringing on solicitor-client privilege.
1: Okay, so that was yesterday. Attorney General David Lametti. Uh, testifying at the public inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act, saying that he cannot answer a question that is rather pertinent to the invocation of the Emergencies Act. The advice the government received that they could invoke it anyway, despite the fact that CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, had determined uh, in their assessment that there was not a threat to national security. Now, this is pretty important because the use of the Emergencies Act, there is a threshold threshold for the government acting. Did the government meet this threshold? The Emergencies Act is pretty clear that the definition of a threat to national security relies on the CSIS Act. And under the CSIS Act, CSIS had determined that there was not a threat to national security. Now, it is worth noting, obviously, not only did the government invoke the Emergencies Act anyway, in fact, the director of CSIS said that that was his advice to the government. Now, what basis did they feel they could proceed regardless of the assessment from CSIS? And that's where there was some legal advice provided. But attorney-client privilege means, as the attorney general said, he cannot speak to that. So we don't know and may never know what advice the government received or from whom, that they still had the leeway under the Emergencies Act to move forward as though there had been a determination of a threat to national security. So it, it's getting into the weeds of these two pieces of legislation, but it's, it's directly at the core of this whole process. Was the threshold met? Did the government have the authority, uh, the justification to invoke the Emergencies Act? There's a really interesting uh, op-ed exploring some of these questions of the and Mail. Uh, you can find it at uh, theglobeandmail.com. Joining us uh, on the line here this afternoon is the uh, co-author of that piece, David Schneiderman, a professor of law at the University of Toronto. Professor Schneiderman, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program.
11: Thank you, Rob. That was an excellent introduction, by the way.
1: Well, and I appreciate that. So I, I want to allow you to to expand on that. To, wh- why is this understanding so important here?
11: Well, uh, we should want to scrutinize any exercises of the Emergencies Act. Uh, it grants extraordinary powers to the federal cabinet. And the act is designed to ensure that the federal cabinet can't invoke it on on its own whim, rather there are a threshold criteria. You mentioned one of them, uh, that is the emergency has to give rise to something that's defined in the CSIS Act as a threat to the security of Canada. And the other thing is that there are no other laws uh, provincial or federal, that can address the emergency. So both those threshold criteria, it seems to me, need to be satisfied for the government to justify invoking the Emergencies Act uh, in February.
1: So the idea that the definition of a, a national security threat is different in the CSIS Act than it is in the Emergencies Act, where does, where does this notion come
11: from? Well, I think that, uh, that the cabinet officials and ministers have decided that this is the best way to try and meet that threshold criteria. And that is, uh, what they keep on saying is that, well, the director of CSIS might have one opinion, but we have a different opinion. And our opinion about what threats to the security of Canada entail will be broader, than that in the CSIS Act. And that's where their argument fails because the CSIS Act is quite specific, actually, though it grants broad, broad uh, powers to government. It's also quite specific. Um, and there's no room to broaden the definition of threats to the security of Canada. And so the ministers and and cabinet officials are saying, we interpreted threats to the security of Canada broader than that uh, interpretation applied by the CSIS director. Uh, But there's no broader language available. There's no authority in the act to do that. And in fact, it never would have passed in 1987 if it granted to the federal government discretion to broaden the threshold criteria for invoking the Emergencies Act.
1: Well, which could bring us to the question of whether that should change. If the government believes uh, or parliament believes that we need to change the wording of the Emergencies Act to allow for a broader interpretation, we could do that. But that was not the reality of of February of 2022.
11: Right. And that's, you know, in the ordinary course of events, if the statute is too narrow, it doesn't address modern emergencies, which is what the cabinet ministers and officials keep on saying, uh, then you amend the act, right? You reform the law. Um, now, it might be that there was no time to do that in these circumstances. Uh, well, make it an agenda item and do it right away. W- why are we waiting now? We've only just heard about this argument in the last two weeks, right? We didn't hear anything about this at the time of the invocation of the Act or uh, even once the Rouleau Commission, the Commission of Inquiry, began. We, the first we we've heard of this is when these executive officials came up with this narrative um, that, uh, that apparently was circulating uh, at the time, in February, because the CSIS director was advised by the Department of Justice, and you made reference to their legal opinion, that the uh, authority to invoke the act was broader. Uh, so it's all new, it's all hidden, it's untransparent. Um, we wrote our op-ed for the purposes of trying to have some public deliberation about how you could read the act the way uh, the government is reading it. And so far, uh, we're getting really nothing by way of an explanation.
1: Well, and, and the solicitor-client privilege, I mean, it's, it's both legitimate and inconvenient, I guess. But look, I mean, if the government received legal advice that, that led them to this conclusion, that, that seems like some pretty important information here.
11: Well, of course, and they're the client. The government's a client. They can waive that solicitor-client privilege. Right, yeah. um, it's not, you know, their interpretation of the, of the Emergencies Act and the CSIS Act threat to the security of Canada is not a state secret. Frankly, right, in fact, the Act is designed to be as transparent as possible. That's why we have this commission of inquiry, right? It's designed precisely to cabin in the circumstances in which the Emergencies Act is invoked and to have full and public disclosure uh, of the circumstances that gave rise to the invocation of the emergency. So it rubs entirely against the object and design of the Emergencies Act
1: well and i've seen some some line of argument here that that you know follows as such that you know it ultimately should be cabinet's decision to invoke the Emergencies act we shouldn't you know defer to CSIS, or CSIS shouldn't have the final word but is is that a misreading of why this definition is is in the Emergencies act in the first place
11: well it kind of changes the um, the ground upon which the federal government is making its argument there's actually no doubt that the federal cabinet the so-called governor and council will invoke the Emergencies Act, they have to have a reasonable ground for doing so. That's in the statute. It doesn't say you must defer to the thesis director's opinion about threats. Um, so that is is a straw man argument. It's not really what anybody's arguing. What with the concern is that these same officials think that the criteria for invoking the act have broadened between 1987, when the act was passed, and 2022 in February, when the act was invoked for the first time, and there's um, there's no legal ground for doing so. There's only uh, political. Arguments that are being made it seems to me. This is a political strategy, right? Uh, we don't have to defer to the thesis director. We can come to our own independent opinion and that seems right uh, Given the way the act is drafted. They should of course look to the thesis director for the best advice uh, uh, Available advice right? I mean mm-hmm. that seems sensible, but they're not bound by what the thesis director says But they have to have a reasonable ground for believing there's a threat as defined in the CSIS Act. And we know the CSIS director thought it didn't meet the criteria in the CSIS Act. So how is it that the emergency met the CSIS Act criteria? So there's language at the time the Emergencies Act was invoked about uh, threats of violence to overthrow the government, right? I mean, that's the theme. Uh, uh that you'll uh, find when you read some of the documentation in February. But that's simply not credible and certainly the thesis director didn't think, right, that was a credible threat overthrowing the government. So uh, it seems to me that the government's in a whole, it didn't plan for a public inquiry into the circumstances giving rise to the Emergencies Act invocation. All these cabinet ministers have their tweets being exposed, right? to uh, millions of Canadians on TV live. It's pretty embarrassing, Um, uh, and they should be embarrassed because they should uh, only invoke the act in the most extreme circumstances when there's nothing else available, and all the evidence indicates that there were other laws um, available, and also when the CSIS Act criteria of national security threat is satisfied
1: so does this leave it to justice rulo to try to make a determination here i don't know if that's the right way to resolve this this yeah. question here where where does it where does it leave us yeah i'm a
11: bit i'm a bit concerned actually about what justice rulo will do um, the act is very bare bones about his mandate and that is to report on the circumstances mm-hmm. the uh, government's uh, order and council establishing this uh, Rouleau Commission is a bit broader so that they take into account what the convoy protesters were seeking, how Ottawa residents were affected, also some of the financing. So he's got a broader agenda than that suggested in the act. And as I said, it's, it seems to me the government's pursuing a political strategy, right, and just trying to sway public opinion over to its side if it isn't already there. And so, for instance, on Friday, the prime minister will take the stand, and I imagine that he'll, you know, he's, he'll, he'll advance that public relations argument. It's not a good legal argument, which is what, you know, I've been arguing uh, with my co-author in our op-ed. Uh, and there's a case, right, before federal court, Uh, that has been launched by the Canadian Constitutional Foundation and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. And that federal court case is going to be argued, I believe, just before the Rouleau Commission report will be released. It's supposed to be released within a year of the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So the legal argument, right, will have to be much more detailed than anything we've heard here, relying on solicitor-to-client privilege, for instance, uh, will only be good far as, you know, we might not see the document, right, that outlines this argument, but we'll have to hear the argument. Somebody's going to have to stand up and make it. And so far, nobody's made it. Uh, it's very frustrating, you know, uh, trying to engage in uh, public deliberation is an important uh, moment uh, with people who are not explaining themselves.
1: Well said. The op-ed, it's up as mentioned at theglobeandmail.com. Professor Schneiderman, thanks again for joining us here today. Appreciate the insight.
11: My pleasure, Rob.
1: All the best. Uh, David Schneiderman, professor of law at the University of Toronto, uh, co-author of this op-ed we mentioned at the Globe and Mail, along with uh, Leah West uh, from uh, Carleton University. We've spoken with her on the program before as well. And This is an important point here. The law is pretty clear. The government came to a determination that they didn't have to interpret the law exactly as written. Well, okay, that's convenient. Where, where did you get that advice? What's the basis for this determination? As they write in the op-ed, the Emergencies Act requires as a starting point that the threat to the security of Canada, as defined by the CSIS Act, not only exists, but that the national emergency arises from that threat. The evidence provided by CSIS made it clear that no such threat existed. Instead, the testimony is that the failure to resolve the blockades created the potential for serious violence. They flipped the test on its head. And the worst part is we have no idea about the reach of cabinet's new definition. What else could give rise to a public order emergency under this new interpretation? We know it's broader, but we have no idea how broad because no one's been able to articulate how cabinet and its legal advisors came to this reasoning in the first place. The move has made the emergencies Act success, susceptible to the very abuse it was intended to prevent. The dangerous overreach that was feared at the time it was drafted is not only present, but expanding. This is the important point here. This is supposed to be kind of a last resort sort of tool, and that's why the bar was set so high. This was all deliberate in 1987 to put all of this in for that very reason. And if we're going to lower the bar, if we're going to make it easier for government to use this, we're going to give government the the broad leeway to just sort of interpret it as they see fit, then we're going to end up seeing this used more often. And even if you were sympathetic because you disagreed with the targets of it this time, you might not feel the same way next time. I think that's why this matters. Welcome back. As we talked about earlier this week, some last-minute amendments to the government's Bill C-21 looks likely to add potentially hundreds of additional firearms to the list of firearms to be banned under this ban on so-called assault-style weapons. Which makes the, the whole matter even more confusing. What exactly constitutes an a assault-style weapon? And what does this mean now for these uh, lawful firearms owners who suddenly and out of nowhere find themselves in, in the crosshairs, so to speak, of this legislation, which will make these firearms, once passed, prohibited, uh, and lead down the road at some point to a buyback, a mandatory buyback. Press release yesterday. Uh, from the uh, justice ministers for Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, expressing opposition to this uh, expanded firearms ban and talking about exploring possible options to, to oppose this. Well, joining us uh, to talk more about it is Alberta's Minister of Justice, Solicitor General, and also the uh, MLA for Calgary, Acadia Tyler Shander, joining us on the line here this afternoon. Minister, good to have you with us. Welcome to the program.
12: Oh, hey, Rob. Thanks for having me back.
1: Uh, By the way, I mean, we we had, of course, uh, today the prime minister on the sands. I believe still is actually the uh, inquiry into the use of the government's emergencies act. The position of the Alberta government is that uh, the act was an overreach. Any thoughts on on anything we heard or didn't hear from the prime minister today or, or just this whole process?
12: I, I admittedly have not uh, been listening to his testimony today yet, uh, mm-hmm. other than listen to your, your show just before uh, me, me dialing in and, and coming on. So I apologize. I, I, I don't know what testimony he's given other yeah. than that coverage.
1: Well, fair enough. Uh, let's talk about Bill C-21, uh, which look we've been talking about for some time, but uh, now all of a sudden out of nowhere, I think it's really changed the context of the conversation. So what's your understanding of, of what happened or what changed this week?
12: Well, this is unprecedented. Uh, we're talking about the largest gun grab in Canadian history. Um, what, what caused this? I have no idea because previously the federal government was at least using this fig leaf of uh, calling, as you said, that, that previous list of firearms that they were looking to to ban as assault style. And they, they told us that they'd never go after hunters, uh, farmers and sport shooters. And now through a backdoor process last minute with no consultation, they're targeting hunters and farmers and sport shooters.
1: Right. So this is a, a, a proposed amendment to the legislation, which you know still hasn't passed. We should know, but it's a legislation that changes this this whole situation dramatically. So it's, I guess, what we would say it's the, the definition has expanded here.
12: Well, I guess through uh, the the MPs' proposed amendment, I suppose. I mean, it's it's hundreds of. Uh, well, we're talking about actually thousands of, of firearms in Canada. Um, and I think that um, with the 2.2 million licensed firearms owners that we have in, in Canada, um, most of them being affected by this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I mean, again, you, you said, why, why is this happening through this backdoor process? Why are they suddenly adding uh, firearms from hunters and farmers and sport shooters that uh, are clearly not in any definition of assault style, why are they they including these in this new amendment? Um, I think it's it's clear that it's, it's an increasingly um, obvious that this is a, a hostile federal government.
1: So, what do you see as your role here, or at least the the, the provinces' role in in responding to this federal legislation?
12: I think in advocating for um, our our law abiding licensed firearms owners in this province, and and advocating for common sense too. Um, Look, this is uh, so comprehensive. I I think the federal government knows that this is is something they can't even execute on. Um, We're talking about criminalizing overnight hundreds of thousands of Canadians. Um, These are largely unregistered firearms. We have no idea where they would be. We have no record of these firearms or, or where they are. And I don't think that the federal government would be able to execute on this seriously um, unless they were to, to bring in the military. and I hope that's, that's not anything that they would take seriously. So our role is to advocate not just for our firearms owners, but also for common sense and, um, and for, for thoughtful policy to, to reduce um, gun crime in Canada in a thoughtful way that actually addresses the, the folks who are committing crimes and not law-abiding Canadians.
1: Well, we talked before about the buyback aspect of this, this program and, and your concern, your government's concern that uh, the federal government would uh, potentially co-opt RCMP resources in Alberta to undertake this buyback program. Well, now that this has changed, I mean, one example I saw today, uh, the SKS is a very popular firearm amongst uh, sports shooters. Some estimates put uh, it at around 200,000 owners in Canada, just on that firearm alone, it seems that this buyback program, whenever and however it's implemented, is going to be even more massive than than we already thought it would be. So how, did, how does that change on that side?
12: Well, including, including firearms that are clearly not assault style, um, clearly have nothing to do. I mean, listening to Rachel Notley's comments uh, today to describe these firearms as being military style, um, I can't imagine what military would be sending its soldiers into a conflict with an SKS or look I mean even more ridiculous um, uh, a a semi-automatic shotgun for trap shooting that has you know six or more uh, rounds in a magazine I mean that's clearly not military style and this is now capturing hunters and farmers and sport shooters who are exactly the people that we were told by the federal government that they wouldn't target.
1: So, what what options, I, I guess, exist at this point? The, the press release yesterday, as mentioned with you and your colleagues from Saskatchewan and Manitoba, talk about maybe you know exploring some options here. Um, but but short of the the challenges that are already underway, I mean, what what options might be on the table at this point?
12: Well, we will be collaborating with Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Um, we do have an announcement that's going to be coming out in the uh, the coming weeks, um, and we do we do have more that that is in the works. I think this is clearly something, you know, no, nothing has been passed in the legislation and nothing's even been tabled in the legislature yet regarding um, Premier's um, uh, sovereignty within a United Canada Act. But I think that th- these are the types of opportunities that we have in being able to look at what, what options we have with Saskatchewan and Manitoba to, to address our concerns with um, the, the ridiculous proposal here.
1: Well, what what might that entail? I mean i, I don't think a, a province can simply exempt itself from from federal legislation on on a matter like this. i don't I don't think that's what you're implying, but what what else might there be?
12: Well, as I said we we have um, some stuff some some uh, work that is uh, is now being done. We will have an announcement in the coming weeks that um, I can't speak to yet um, but um, we we will be working with Saskatchewan and Manitoba and uh, the chief firearms officers. In, in our, our provinces, I was, and I talked to uh, the, the ministers in those two provinces, um, I think it was Saskatchewan, uh, Minister Tell in Saskatchewan told me that the Chief Firearms Officer in Saskatchewan advised her that this is going to affect 10% of Saskatchewan uh, residents. So um, I, I think that there's um, a need for us to, to be working collaboratively um, between the three provinces to define to uh, common sense solutions to to addressing the concerns that um, people in, in all three of our provinces are going to have with this proposal.
1: And have you heard anything from, from your federal counterparts as to, you know, the point of all of this, what this might entail in, in terms of the provinces or any kind of, of uh, further clarification?
12: No, not since the, the announcement of the amendment. Um, obviously, Minister Mendicino um, took great offense to to my my previous announcement in September to um, seeking to intervene in, in the, the six judicial reviews and our concerns with having RCMP resources um, being used to uh, to confiscate these firearms. Um, and I, he made it very clear in, in his announcement or his response to my announcement that um, he is going to be looking to, to use the agreement that we have with the RCMP to conscript them. Um, so that's a concern for us. I think taking police resources off the streets to um, to a, to a program that's not going to reduce any gun crime at all in this country is um, is, is a real concern. So we'll continue to work with Saskatchewan and Manitoba to define the, the types of common-sense solutions I think the folks in our provinces want to see.
1: All right. Well, we'll uh, look forward to further announcements uh, on this front. We'll leave it there for now, Minister. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Rob. Bye. All right. That's Starla Shandra, Alberta's Minister of Justice, Solicitor General. So expressing their opposition along with uh, his colleagues in Manitoba and Saskatchewan to the federal government's now expanded ban on uh, assault-style weapons and uh, looking at other avenues uh, potentially to, to oppose or, or block this.
2: we've got to make sure that the schools stay open for in-person learning and that there is also choice for for parents and for students. That's why we made the decision we did is to give that clear direction.
1: Good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. My name is Rob Breckenridge. A lot to get to uh, here in this hour. We'll uh, certainly talk more about the Prime Minister's appearance before the public inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. That's a big story today, and we'll get back to that. Uh, But that was uh, the voice of Alberta's Premier Daniel Smith today answering some questions about the decision announced yesterday. It's going to have a big impact on schools, the Alberta government taking steps to ensure that schools are not the ones to decide whether to impose a mask mandate. So preventing schools or school boards from imposing their own mask mandate, but also requiring that schools keep in-person learning available, uh, that schools, even in a serious outbreak situation, not be able to switch to remote learning entirely. Schools are going to have some online or remote learning component There would still have to be an option of in-person learning. Now, we're not yet to the point where schools have, as far as I'm aware, shifted or tried to shift to online learning. But schools are under considerable pressure right now in various parts of the province with numerous respiratory illnesses circulating, high levels uh, of absenteeism, not just among children, obviously, but among teachers as well. Which does raise the question that if the expectation is that in-person learning be maintained no matter what, what are we doing to ensure that there are the resources? If you're going to have kids in school, you need teachers there. So, Joining us for some thoughts on what this might mean in practice for teachers is the president of the Alberta Teachers Association, Jason, uh, Jason Schilling, joining us here this afternoon. Jason, good to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Oh, great. Thanks
10: for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Uh, first of all, I don't know, I mean, was the ATA in, involved in any of these conversations, or were, were you kind of uh, as surprised as everybody else by this yesterday?
10: No, we were not consulted or involved in the conversations around the regulations that were released yesterday. And um, it, it's frustrating because it's something that we've seen happen several times through the course of the last couple of years. An announcement made by government and then those who work in the schools or are in charge of schools, such as school boards, are sort of left scrambling, trying to figure out just exactly what does it mean, how will it work, and then you have to sort of follow up with government afterwards and say, this actually won't work. Um, we need to adjust uh, the plan. So I, I wish, as I had in the past, that the government had been more proactive and actually consulted with uh, people who are working in the field in regards to this decision they made yesterday.
1: Well, if they had, I mean, what what would you have said, or what would your advice have been? Well, you sort of hit on it
10: as in the intro. I mean, when you talk about um, saying you know, for school has to make the unfortunate decision to move online because they can't meet the needs of their operations so they can't uh, find enough uh, supply teachers or substitute teachers to cover off teacher illnesses, if they're seeing high rates of absenteeism, and they have to make that decision to go online, but they still have to have classes in person at the same time, well, you're kind of doubling up or requiring more staff to make that happen effectively so that students can have that continuity of learning. And if schools can't get people in because of illness, how are schools going to make this work? when uh, you can't get people in and now suddenly you're doing it on online and in person and there's also a big factor there as well of um, you know this is a big impact on parents as well who suddenly need to be home with their children so i think getting into more proactive measures about addressing you know what we're seeing in the community in terms of health because we know what happens in our communities is is mirrored in our schools um, addressing that i think that we could have done some work as well, government and school boards, are looking at ventilation in our buildings and uh, yeah. bringing that up to um, above standards. So I know some school boards have invested money into HEPA filters, for instance, for all of their classrooms to keep that air quality moving in. There's other things that could have been done um, and still can be done, I think, as we move through this, this school year to help um, keep them open because really, ultimately, that's where teachers and kids want to be.
1: So what can you tell us about the, the status quo? And, I mean, we're, we're hearing about high levels of, of student absentee rates, uh, teachers obviously being impacted. There's a lot of pressure on mm-hmm. substitutes right now. And, you know, in some cases, what I've heard anecdotally is that, you know, absent uh, a substitute being available, you know, it's just about can we find an adult to be in the classroom? I mean, it's, it's getting to the point where it seems like it's uh, affecting learning.
10: Well, it's been it's been challenging this fall, and we know that students are are absent and they're staying home because they're sick, which is is what we should be doing. But talked to a lot of my colleagues, especially through the last couple of weeks, about just how challenging it is when, you know. I, Certain amount of students are missing. you try to get them caught up, and then a different amount of students are missing, and then other students are missing, and then the teacher becomes ill and they can't get a substitute. so the rest of the adults in the building are scrambling to cover off classes through the course of the day and it's It's been really challenging and at the root of it is you want to make sure your kids are learning and that they're moving forward, but there's this perpetual catch up game that is is being caught right now, and I've talked to some parents too who you know the saying my child's been home for a week. Um, they've been quite sick and not sure if they're going to go back next week. And uh, yeah, everybody is sort of in a, a tough situation. And, I, you know, there's not just one single simple solution that's going to fix it all at once.
1: Well, that's a challenge. And, I mean, you know, what we're hearing from health officials is that, you know, we, we still got some tough weeks ahead, right? So, mm-hmm. Jason, what, what's your anticipation of that combination of this, this ongoing challenge with illness and now some of the limitations uh, the province is imposing here?
10: Well, I mean, this is why we, we looked at the, the regulations that came out yesterday. And, uh, you know, the, the solutions that are put there are, are unworkable in terms of what you're asking schools to do in terms of delivering programs online and in person at the same time. Um, to talk about masking, I mean, you're, we've had protocols that were in place through the pandemic that were effective. But now we're taking some of those pro- protocols sort of off the table and we're saying school boards can't do this. And um, that is, you know, like when the premier first mused about taking or ending masking mandates for schools, or not allowing them to do it. My my question is, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. COVID's been very adaptable, and we need to be adaptable as well. And government needs to be adaptable in order to address it, so that we can keep our schools open, keep our kids in their classrooms, safe with the people who are working with them. And I think that when we take things off the table without putting other things in place, other protocols, um, it's short-sighted in its decision-making.
1: We'll leave it there for now. Jason, appreciate your input on this. Thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon.
10: Yeah, You bet. Have a great afternoon.
1: All You as well. Jason Schilling, president of the Alberta Teachers Association. So some frustration here that, that they weren't consulted and that we haven't really addressed the resource side. Right, that it, it certainly should be incumbent on schools to, to close as a last resort or to shift to online learning as a last resort. So what are we doing to ensure that we have the resources available or, or any other preventative measures so that it doesn't get to that point? And we play a little bit uh, more from uh, the Premier's press conference. Now, this was an announcement today. She was on hand for the Alberta government announcing some steps to Twin Highway 3 in southeastern Alberta. Uh, but in the Q&A, some questions from reporters about this announcement, which we got via press release yesterday. So the first opportunity for the premier to address it is a little bit more of what she had to say today.
2: Well, if you look at what happened with the Alberta School Boards Association, they passed a motion saying that they would give deference to the Chief Medical Officer of Health. And I think they recognize, because they don't have doctors on staff at school boards, that they have to rely on medical opinion. And so I was pleased to see that motion. And I was pleased when I asked them to try to create a normal learning environment for our kids, that they were very receptive to that message. I think that we have to make sure that we're supporting choice, so that no one's discriminated against, that um, anyone is welcome to where mask if they feel that that is the the right choice for them but we should not be forcing uh, parents to, to mask their kids and we shouldn't be denying education to kids who, uh, who, do, who turn up without a mask so I think that the, that this decision has also been validated across the country there's no mask mandates in British Columbia and Saskatchewan in Quebec I noticed with some interest that there was a great debate at an Ottawa school board that uh, ended up having this very motion defeated on a tie vote was very fractious over the course of two days. So I think that our school boards welcome the fact that we've given some clear direction on this. We've got to make sure that the schools stay open for in person learning and that there is also choice for, for parents and for students. That's why we made the decision we did is to give that clear direction. Given
3: the number of children who are, are quite ill uh, and the number of absences that we're seeing in Alberta, if you want to keep kids learning in classrooms, wouldn't it be better to have everybody masked so that there isn't a, a, a need for online learning?
2: Uh, I guess here's the question that I have I mean we we took some pretty extreme and draconian measures when we had a novel virus that we didn't know how it was going to impact people there were some pretty extreme projections about the number of people who would die as a result of getting COVID where we've made the decision in June to move to an endemic phase in the treatment of this virus RSV is a very common childhood virus influenza we know that we've been treating it endemic for years, and we're we're just not going to normalize these kind of extreme measures every single respiratory virus season. What we need a normal school environment for our children, and we need to make sure that the that the classrooms stay open so to be able to support our parents. So I, I think that we, we when we said that we were moving to endemic, we were we were serious about it. And so I'm I'm grateful that the uh, the school boards are uh, seem to be supportive of that, and we'll continue to do what we can to address this uh, this very difficult time. Every single time we get into fall respiratory virus season. There is pressure on the healthcare system, and that's why we're doing healthcare reform, is to make sure that we can manage that additional pressure.
1: Okay, so there you go. That was the premier uh, today addressing, uh, the, I guess, the, the thinking behind this. And then there's some fair points there. I mean, you know, we are facing a unique challenge right now. It is respiratory virus season, sure. Uh, a lot of this is happening sooner than it normally would, and we're getting hit with, uh, you know, all three at once, which is pretty unique. That doesn't necessarily justify a mask mandate or any other, I guess, quote-unquote draconian measures. But it doesn't make sense for the Alberta government to sort of tie the hands of school boards or schools to respond to their unique situations. And and again, if the onus is on keeping schools open, which it should be, what are the steps are the government taking to make sure that that's feasible? It's one thing to say it, but if the teachers aren't available, the resources aren't available, then it's all a moot point.
2: Thanks for downloading and
1: listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.